This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming. Good morning and welcome to the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy podcast. I'm Brian Schrader, agronomist on the western, or excuse me, eastern side of the state, joined as always by my co-host Carl Joran on the western side of the state and Ben Jacob from southern Indiana. Good morning, guys. How are you? Morning, Brian. Carl? Doing well, Brian. We will welcome you to the western side of the state of Indiana. You are uh, you're part of the club today. Okay, I'll I'll take it. So, guys, very excited today for our guest. We're uh, privileged to have Dr. Beth Hall, uh, who is the Indiana State Climatologist, with us this morning. And uh, as our listeners know, I am the resident weather nerd for the podcast. And so I am extremely excited to have Dr. Hall with us this morning to talk about uh, the Indiana State Climatology Office and uh, all the things that she does for us in the state and then talk about uh, weather and uh, all those things related. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Hall. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me here. I like it. Sure. Well, maybe the best place to start is uh, you've been our climatologist in the state for, I think, maybe two years, just slightly short of that. Maybe I think I forget when you did start, but maybe talk to us a little bit. Oh, my, I didn't realize it had been four. Wow. Time flies, I guess. So um, (laughs) you uh, have an interesting job for the state that I think a lot of people maybe don't recognize a exists and b what all you and and your office do but let's start maybe with how you arrived at uh, the state climatology office and a little bit of your background yeah that's, that's a good question and and i laugh because i think even my mom doesn't know what it is that i do and <laughs> uh, if there are other state climatologists out there so I actually got my degree in physical geography, which would be, and I focused it on meteorology or the study of the atmosphere. And then my graduate degrees were in atmospheric science. So really that sets any student, any graduate up for a wide variety of careers. I, at the time, really wanted to go into forecasting. And so working for the National Weather Service uh, when I got my undergraduate, but at the time, there was a hiring increase, so I decided to go on to graduate work, and it was during my graduate studies that I learned a lot more about climatology, applied climatology in particular. I think as an undergraduate, I thought climatologists just figured out the average temperature and the average amount of rainfall, and while that can be interesting, it was really when I saw how climate or really historical data can be applied to help anyone, regardless of the sector, make better uh, better decisions. And so I was out in Reno, Nevada, actually, and my start in applied climatology had to do with wildfires. So mm-hmm. agencies such as the U.S. Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management, California Department of Fire, they would um, work with us because the more they would know where there was an increased like. Uh, likeness, likelihood of a natural ignition starting, then they could try to locate all their resources there. So they're not, in a sense, trying to, you know, a couple days behind getting planes and people. And so really what that meant is looking back over a long historic record. And, and for me, my long historic record is around 100 years. So I don't look at ice cores or tree rings. Mm-hmm. It's really the observational data. But can we go back, say, over 100 years? are there any patterns 
to what the climate was like or the weather was like at the time with wildfire emissions. So you can see how that can then translate to many different fields. And for agriculture, it could be, well, when might be the best time to apply chemicals? When might be the best time to plant certain crops over other crops? And so if we have a historical record of successes and failures, and can relate that to what the weather was like, maybe not just even that day, but what was the previous winter like? Did that really add moisture to the soils that helped in the spring? Or was the spring um, particularly wet? So this is what applied climatologists or even service climatologists, which I would say is my field, of trying to really examine past data, raw data could be temperature, precepts, soil moisture, winds, a whole variety of stuff for the non-atmospheric uh, person so that they can make better decisions. As far as state climatologists go, there is a state climatologist in almost every state. Um, I think Massachusetts might be the one that is not does not have a state climatologist, but Puerto Rico and Guam do. So we actually have more than 50 across the U.S. and they all are managed or they have their job uniquely because there is no federal mandate. I mean, these are state positions. So it's really up to the state and the host institution to decide what do they want the state climatologist to do and what will the funding be like for them. I would say about two-thirds of the state climatologists are hosted through universities, much like Indiana's, where Purdue University is the host of the state climatologists in Indiana, whereas we can go over to Iowa, and that uh, state climatologist is located, I believe, in the Department of Natural Resources or Water mm -hmm. Center in South Carolina is certainly in Department of Natural Resources. Um, but so it's usually through a university or through a state government office. And the idea is, is you have someone who is kind of keeping an eye on conditions across that state can maybe respond to things in a historical perspective, such as Indiana has been dry. Well, how dry has it? Has it been record dry? Mm -hmm. Has the heat, are we seeing um, extended days? You know, I think most people can tolerate maybe three days in a row um, temperatures over 95 or even 100. But once we start hitting four or five days in a row, then that's a problem not only for people, but for livestock. And so they might consult with a state climatologist and say, is there an increasing trend of this? Where in the state is that an issue? Should we start thinking about cooling centers? Or as we are replacing infrastructure or building new infrastructure, do we need to think about different materials that we use if we have more, say, freeze-thaw days over the winter? Because that puts a lot of um, stress on materials. So it's usually not just about agriculture or wildfires or water resources. We just try and keep an eye on everything that's observational data and tie that into what people need to make decisions. Well, we talked about the time frame and you talked about the hundred years. You know, one of the things when we think about climate uh, is also the size of the geography that we look at. And certainly with interpolated data, uh, we have folks that really try to zero in maybe on their field or the corner of the field. And I think we all know from experience sometimes the limitations with interpolated data. Uh, talk to us a little bit from a climatologist standpoint 
what's the size of geography that you would typically look at? Is it a state? Is it a region? Talk to us a little bit about what that looks like when you start to look at these historical trends. Uh, yeah, I, you know, it could range anywhere. A lot of times it could be variable um, specific. So temperature is a variable that um, is fairly continuous. So if people are wondering about heat days, heat stress, or even freeze thaw days, we can look at that maybe in something the size of a third of Indiana or a ninth of Indiana if we break it up into a grid. If it's precipitation, uh, that's so spotty in nature. You can have rain falling on one part of your field and then nothing on the other part of the field. So that's where I would love to have a rain gauge, you know, every square foot, which is ridiculous, right? <laughs> Never have room for plants. But for us to truly understand the variability, soil moisture can also be very variable, whereas soil temperature can be more continuous in nature. So it, it's not an easy one answer. It's more of um, what is the variable we're talking about, but then also what is the question that's being asked? So if uh, the question is, are we at greater risk for derechos or those straight line wind events that have been passing through and flattening cornfields, if you will? Well, I'm not going to want to look at just Indiana. I might look at the whole Midwest in that case just to see, because those things can be very long lines that span across many states. If it's more of what is the risk of a freeze event, um, maybe I can just hone in on Indiana. So it's it's also not just a variable, but it's the application that's going to play a role in how far out the spatial coverage I want to consider. Okay. Um, curiously, uh, you mentioned the rain gauge every square foot. Um, certainly, uh, most growers have a rain gauge or, a, you know, some type of weather system at their farm. Uh, different ways to connect that via the internet and some other things. Talk to us a little bit about the the system that's in place in the state of Indiana. I know I've heard you speak a number of times about would like to increase that and get, you know, more of that saturation for the data. Talk to us a little bit about the resources that are available right now in the state from that standpoint for uh, data collection. Wow, uh, that's kind of a loaded question. And if you're ever looking for short answers for me, it may not come even this time. <laughs> Uh, there's first of all, you got to go back to those different ways that we can observe and measure rain. Uh, it could be a manual rain gauge where it just fills up a tube and people can go out and look at where it's filled up and that's good to go. And actually, um, among the field of climatologists, that's probably the most accurate instrument we have for rain. But who all wants to go out there when it's raining? And if it's not raining, it's easy to forget to even go out there because you're like, it hasn't been raining. So a lot of us do have more automated rain gauges uh, that they bought and maybe have spread across their field or we have across the state. And if there are any moving parts, the most common and affordable automatic rain gauge that people have is called a tipping gauge, where it looks like a seesaw inside the unit. And as rain fills up one end of the seesaw, it will push it down, click a sensor, and then it will go back and forth. Anytime you have a moving part, you can have it rust up, you can have it get stuck. Even any rain gauge can have a bird find it to be a perfect location for a nest. So we might have a pretty good network of um, amateur weather enthusiasts with those sorts of rain gauges out there. 
But unless they do a calibration of that rain gauge at least once a year, you might still be getting clicks, but it may be a fraction of the time it should just because it's going to not respond as quickly. So there's several networks across Indiana where we get our data. The manual rain gauge that I, I really love and promote, but it takes more work, obviously, is called COCO-ROS. This is a national, what we call, citizen science network. And we have quite a few people, but mostly in urban areas that participate in this program. We could always use more observers in rural areas uh, because it's not just for them. It's for the National Weather Service. It's for emergency management. It's for your state climatologist to know what fell in that location. We then can go all the way up to what our federal government has. So the National Weather Service has um, a little bit higher end rate gauges that's based on the weight of the water. We know that water has a very reliable density to it. So if, uh, if the rain gauge sits on a scale, then we can know how much rain fell, but those are very expensive. And so I would say we might have um, 20 around the state, if that, maybe, maybe a little bit more, but because they're so pricey. And then we have what's called a mesonet, which is just a network of weather stations. And Indiana actually has two. One is the Purdue mesonet that I manage out of the state climate office. And then we have the Indiana Water Balance Network that's managed out of the Indiana Geological and Water Survey down at Indiana University. These um, do use the tipping bucket method for remote monitoring, but we do go out. I know for the Purdue Mesonet, we go out three times a year and we calibrate those rain gauges. We make sure that if we pour in what is equivalent to half an inch of rain, the Mesonet's doing it. So, that's another thing I wanted to point out is hobbyists have at it. I, I'm obviously a weather enthusiast too, but if you're not actually calibrating your sensors um, at least annually, then how much tolerance are you okay with? Are you okay if things are off by a tenth or a quarter of an inch? Are you okay if temperatures are off by a couple of degrees? And I think for the everyday grower or weather enthusiast, fine, right? But for researchers, for state climatologists, I need this data to be as accurate as possible. People are making big decisions off of this data. So a lot of times I do have to keep in mind where is this data coming from? How often is it being calibrated? Are there even quality control routines that are skimming through the data on a regular basis to make sure it's good? Yeah, well, personal experience, I had to clean my rain gauge out a week ago, um, and I do have an inexpensive tipping bucket, and uh, it has a, essentially a funnel on the top of it that sits above the bucket, and we had an insect that uh, had built a nest just perfectly in the very bottom of the hole, and so I think I perhaps for a couple rain events maybe got 50 percent of what i actually should have gotten based on uh looking at neighboring uh systems and so uh just a, a word of caution make sure that uh whether you calibrate or not you should probably clean as well and so uh learn <laughs> that so yeah well certainly i know that uh with the purdue mesonet we can get that data from the website uh, for the state climate office. I also know that there's another resource that's available that I want to make sure we talk about that I think 
a lot of our growers will find uh, quite useful if they're unaware of it. And that's actually the MRCC. Uh, would you talk to us a little bit about that, how that, I know you've managed that for a number of years as well. Talk to us about how that data comes in and then how it can be optimized and put to use for our agricultural uh, listeners. Sure. So the MRCC stands for the Midwestern Regional Climate Center. There are six regional climate centers across the U.S., and we receive our funding from NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which is where the National Weather Service is housed. Um, the reason why these developed, and we are celebrating our 40th anniversary as a regional climate center program, all six of us, sort of like state climatologists, we stay under the radar, right? We, we don't really <laughs> try and get out in front of everybody. Um, but while at the national level, uh, all data that is being collected uh, from federal observing networks are housed, and actually it's in Asheville, North Carolina, there was a recognition in the early 1980s that that's just data. That's not really serving the taxpayers. So there is a pitch coming out of both Cornell University and University of Illinois of what if we had regional centers that had access to all the same data that was being collected at the national level, but we were providing not just the raw data, but value-added tools for the stakeholders in the region. So each of the six centers have different themes. Uh, for example, the Western Regional Climate Center, one of the themes is wildfires but it's also going to be coastal issues. But in the Midwest, our two things are agriculture and water resources. And so we try, even though we can venture away from those two things, we always try to work with those in uh, the agriculture and water resource sector to say, is there any sort of monitoring tool or even model that could be developed that's very user custom driven online? Um, and one of our most popular tools at the MRCC on our website is the Growing Degree Day tool for farmers. Mm -hmm. And that's where they can go in and they can say, I planted, if I planted a seed on this date, and these were the conditions, and it's a particular seed that needs this many uh, days or even Growing Degree Day accumulation, when should this be ready for harvest? And this was really important back in 2019 when things were very wet and cold and it took a while for uh, the seed to get in the ground. I think a lot of people were worried, are they going to even make it to harvest before the first hard freeze comes along? So that's one example of a tool that you can find on the MRCC website. And it is just mrcc.purdue.edu. Uh, so really, if you just want to monitor what's been happening recently over the past 730 days, et cetera, if you want to look at specific tools, if you want to see graphs or maps of the data, a lot of that is there. At the moment, it's mostly federal data that is in there because we do want to keep it high quality um, data that we are confident about. So even though we might have access to data that's weather underground, we really don't point people to that through the MRCC. As far as mesonet data goes, uh, some mesonets, for example, the Missouri mesonet said, have at it, you know, enjoy our, our data, take it, put it in there. Um, and so Climate is the online data portal within the MRCC. Users can grab data from the Missouri mesonet. 
Uh, I'm very excited once the Purdue MesaNet data gets in there, but the NRCC transition from University of Illinois to Purdue University in 2021, I believe, near the end of that. And we have been spending, honestly, the last couple of years just trying to overhaul the website, make sure tools were working and so forth. So um, until that dust settles, uh, you probably have to go to our state climate office page to get the MesaNet data. Well, I certainly like the update. We've gotten an update here not too long ago on the website. It's been they've been working through, and the, the presentation of the material guys is really nice. The maps are readily available, just right there, kind of at a very quick glance. You can go to many of the things that I utilize on a pretty regular basis, and so I certainly uh, have enjoyed getting a chance to surf around and see the the new. Uh, website layout for the MRCC. So, Carl, um, Brian, I know you had some questions. Yeah, to Dr. Hall's point, Dr. Hall, thanks for being with us. Uh, I've never been referred to uh, as a non-atmospheric person, but that is definitely going uh, on the byline for any future publications. Um, you mentioned 2019, the use of the MRCC's growing degree unit tool. Um, that I probably spent, I don't know, almost every day for two weeks time there trying to help growers evaluate decisions on relative maturities. Uh, from a more applied nature, how uh, how early can one start to forecast that uh, most likely uh, first freeze event for uh, growers that are listening to to this episode of the podcast here? Is it something that we really don't feel like we have that 95% confidence interval until we're 10 days out? Or can we start honing in on it, you know, months away? What What's your perspective on uh, things that impact farmers in Indiana? Yeah, unfortunately, knowing which day the first hard freeze will occur or even how cold it will be on that day, we're still a ways away. And that's another um, good topic for me to try and explain the difference between forecasting and climate outlooks. So typically, a weather forecast can give you that information, such as on this day, we believe temperatures will get down to 26 degrees, the overnight low, if you will. And we can see forecasts. I certainly reliably three to five days out, but I know there's apps out there that go 10, even 15 days. And those would still be considered forecasts. Climate outlooks, on the other hand, do more of a probabilistic uh, answer to the question, such as there is a 30% chance that we could be looking at a hard freeze over the next two to three weeks. And even then, I think we uh, don't commit ourselves that much. We'll just say sure. that we are quite confident that temperatures will be below normal over that time period. So think about those two differences and which one is more accurate, because really after about 10 to 15 days, we shift things from thinking about absolute numbers to probabilities of risk. Mm -hmm. And I believe that we're fairly good at probability of risk, certainly not this far out for the fall freeze. But what that growing degree day tool does is it shows you historically the date when those freezes occurred and the user can put in what defines a freeze. Is it a 32 degrees? Is it 28 degrees? So they can see again, climatologically, yeah, you might've had a hard freeze occur particularly early, but they typically occur within this say five day period. Mm -hmm. But we also just introduced a new tool on the MRCC webpage called the freeze dates tool. And that um, users can further go to that tool, click on, I 
can't remember if it's station or county, but that's there they can see for that specific location what was the earliest, what was the median date, what was the latest. Is there a changing trend in that date? As we hear about climate change and so forth, is the date of the first hard freeze occurring later and later in the hmm. season? And I had originally assumed before we developed the tool, well, of course it's getting later and later because the planet is warming. But we were finding that that's actually not true for all locations, that some locations, that uh, date of the first fall freeze is actually occurring earlier, which just blows my mind because I'm trying <laughs> to figure out why that would be. But I think that's more the extreme variability of our shifting climate as opposed to a linear trend of reliability. Of course. Dr. Hall, you brought up uh, the changing climate, and uh, that was one of the things I wanted to talk about. We certainly recognize that uh, that is taking place. Now we can uh, debate the reasons for that, uh, political or otherwise, but we certainly know from recorded data that we are seeing a change in the climate. Uh, at Pioneer, obviously, we talk about how that impacts performance of corn and soybean products, and will that change our breeding efforts and things like that. I, I guess I'd like to get your take and uh, your discussion that you provide to people on how much are we changing over time, uh, what that looks like in the coming years, and from a state climatology standpoint, what you would expect to see in terms of crop growth and where folks like ourselves at Pioneer and others may need to start to pivot and make some adjustments. Sure. So, yeah, the, the topic of climate change can be volatile at some time, uh, some audiences. And so I actually prefer to use the phrase climate extremes and variability because I think people can relate to that more. It hasn't been politicized and it's more factual. I think saying climate change can be so vague, so open and debated. But if we say that we're seeing more and more extremes in terms of records being broken, uh, as I said earlier, if you have three days in a row of extremely hot temperatures, maybe we're now looking at four or five days in a row. And that's another example of extremes. But the variability has been another big story that even though the joke in the state is, you know, wait a few minutes and your weather's going to change, uh, which I have to say I've heard in every state I've lived in from Nevada to Maryland to New Hampshire, um, we're, it's that pendulum swing is getting more violent, if you will. And in fact, my colleague over in Illinois, Trent Ford, he has used the expression um, tail swing. So if you think about, you know, the tail of a dog, you, yeah, I mean, we're used to some days that are wet and some days that are dry, but now we're looking at deluges of rain. And then all of a sudden the faucet turns off and we're not just seeing a more steady pattern. We've always had warm days followed by cooler days, but I feel like we're going from triple digit high days down to 70s. And, and those major variabilities can be stressful, particularly in the early stages of plant growth, because they're trying to adapt, right? They're trying to figure out what have I just been tossed into and where am I going to go with it? And if we suddenly have much bigger extremes, I think we need to be um, considering more tolerance of those extremes going forward. And in the Midwest, when we look at the whole planet, uh, there are certainly areas that are showing extreme impacts and 
data, we can quantify where it, the climate change has been greatest. When I look at these maps, though, of, of our planet, the Midwest always seems to be in a relatively neutral area. That doesn't mean that we are protected or safe. Or we're not going to see it. But I think that's also why it's been a difficult conversation for people to have in the Midwest, because we're not seeing the extremes and the impacts that people elsewhere around the world are seeing. In fact, we're not even seeing those extreme impacts in the Midwest as those in Florida or California or Hawaii. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's other Americans that are really, truly, I mean, when we hear the headlines of what Texas has been through, both with their ice storms and their energy network and their heat waves, and then Florida, we just really don't have that in the Midwest. We don't have coastal issues that we have to worry about. We're kind of at a latitude between the equator and the North Pole that protects us from too much extreme heat and too much extreme cold. We're in a very battleground location, and that's where the variability we're going to experience. But um, as far as are we heading in one direction and does it look bad, I think there's going to be winners and losers as we transition. Sure. You know, historically, when you look at the use of science, we like to go back and like to try to make some level of comparison. Um, as you mentioned, certainly the extremes appear to be getting more extreme. As we look at the historical weather data, is there any place that you can go into that data where perhaps from a percentage standpoint or anything, is there previous data that we can use and examine to try to understand these extremes that we're starting to see uh, in the weather? Or is this just simply unprecedented in the size and the scope of, of these extremes? There, there are some comparable periods, uh, particularly for Indiana. And if we want to look at times that were very dry and, and very hot, then we usually go back to the 1930s, um, possibly even the 1950s. But climatologists typically say that with an asterisk because it was a lot of land management practices that contributed to that, not so much the climate environment itself. So while if we just were looking at the raw data and didn't have an understanding of the practices that were happening, Back then, we could sit there and go, see, it happened before. But we learned so much from that decade that we're not doing those practices anymore. And we are, at least in temperatures, seeing temperatures get very high. Now, fortunately, we don't see the dryness. And if anything, Indiana has been on the wetter side than the drier side. But yeah, so that would probably be what we call the only analog that I can think of. If we even go back beyond that and start even looking into what we call paleo records, so ice, cores, tree rings, we aren't seeing temperatures uh, like this, as um, particularly as rapid. And that's the thing is we can go back almost pre-human time in the, um, the planet of the Earth and see, oh, temperatures were higher. But, you know, humans weren't around when it was that hot. So that should wake us up. And any times that got really close to the temperatures we're seeing today happened over centuries coming out of ice ages. We're seeing this increase over decades. So the rate of this change is absolutely unprecedented. We don't even see this in tree ring, ice core, pollen records, if you will. Uh, so the rate of change is concerning and then how high it's been given to just the, the 
tens of thousands of years that our species has been around. Beth, I'd, I'd be curious, you know, we talked a little bit about the land management practices in the 30s, Dust Bowl area, how that contributed to, you know, the drought um, and exceptional weather that was experienced nearly 100 years ago now. Uh, I know that as a state climatologist, you contribute to the uh, University of Nebraska-Lincoln's drought monitor efforts. Uh, could you give folks a peek behind the curtain, kind of how those orange, yellow, red maps come out every Thursday? Um, warning and the work that goes into that. I, I think folks would be interested in that, given you you just came to us from one of those calls, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So trying to figure out where there's drought and to what magnitude takes a lot. Uh, it's never quantitatively de uh, determined or qualitatively determined. So there are probably 20 to 30 popular products that the state uh, coordinators look at. Uh, this could range from precipitation maps, uh, like how far ahead or behind are we? It could be integrating precipitation over time. It could be looking at temperatures. Has it been particularly hot? Uh, so how much evapotranspiration has there been? I also look at hydrologic parameters, such as stream flows, groundwater supplies. Are those getting impacted? Soil moistures, are our soil moistures declining and at what rate? Because that's going to play a role. And then uh, we have calls pretty much every Monday morning uh, with a group. And I would say we get around 15, 20 people on these calls from, say, Department of Natural Resources, the National Weather Service, Department of Emergency Management, USDA. And we discuss what we're seeing in those maps. And we also take anecdotal information. So I uh, work with Extension, and Extension is split funded through USDA and the state. There ideally is an Extension person in every county, so I ask each of them to let us know what are you seeing, what sort of impacts, are you seeing vegetation browning, are curling, are you seeing cracked soils, and so forth. And so they can then report to us what they're visually seeing impact-wise and we integrate that with the quantitative maps that we see. And from that, we try and then go up against almost a key that says, if it's abnormally dry, these are the typical impacts. If you're looking at extreme drought, these are the impacts. So there is a sort of standardization across the U.S. And on those Monday calls, I also invite representatives from our neighboring states, Illinois, Kentucky, Ohio, and Michigan, and we do sort of a round robin with them to make sure that our lines are coordinating as they cross the border. So where I have a threshold between two categories of drought, is that what Illinois is planning to do at the same border, et cetera? And then usually on Tuesdays, each state coordinator, so in a sense, I'm the state coordinator and I have a team of people that I talk with on Mondays. And then once we all kind of come to a consensus, I then deliver our statewide recommendations to the national author, and then the national author combines what our recommendations are with what he or she is seeing. And that national author changes every other, every two weeks. So that can also show the um, individual subjective input to these maps, because some authors will just listen entirely to what we say and just copy our recommendations over, and other national authors are going to come back and be like, nope, I don't want to do that. I want to go in a different direction. So 
I think the U.S. drought monitor is great. We've had it since 2000, uh, 2000, I think even maybe 2001. So quite a long history as far as climate is concerned in that manner. But keep in mind, there is a subjective element to it. And we know that the drought levels can tie into um, farming monetary relief, if you will, under certain conditions. And so they do at the national level try and take it very seriously, knowing that this can tie into dollars. Um, but it, it is a coordinated effort, and every state tries to make sure we're getting input, um, both quantitatively from that data that we're collecting and people from the visual thing. Well, it certainly has been interesting to watch the drought monitor change over the course of this season. Certainly when we started to plant, we had a few weeks there where the majority of the state uh, had went to, uh, you know, abnormally dry. It's been interesting over the course of the last few weeks to see how that has changed, Dr. Holland. So getting to see a little bit behind the curtain on that, I think is valuable for all of our listeners. So uh, we're coming to the end of our time, but I've got uh, certainly one more question uh, to ask. Uh, anytime you have a, a weather professional on, uh, our listeners want a forecast. And we've already talked about the fact that you are not necessarily the forecasting folks, uh, but certainly on the state climatology office's website, we do have forecast. Now they use that percentage like you have talked about rather than this temperature this day and those kind of things. I know we are due, I think, for an update on the 30 and the 90-day uh, forecast coming up, but could you give us just a little bit of insight and, into what it's going to look like here for the next 30 and 90 days based on what the uh, office is going to release here soon? Sure. So I take this information from the National Climate Prediction Center. So if somebody wants to do a web search, Climate Prediction Center, you can see these maps. But it's suggesting that over the next week or so, uh, our temperatures should, should be below normal, which is nice. But then beyond that, we're anticipating things will shift back to being above normal or warmer than normal temperatures. Precipitation, again, over that same period, is probably going to continue in this wet pattern for a while. But then the models just couldn't figure out what they wanted to do beyond the next couple of weeks. As we look out beyond, so for the month of July, it was saying it should be wet and it should be kind of normal in temperatures, if I recall. So we've certainly gotten that, but I don't know if that was based on the, the large amount of rain we've just received and if things are going to turn off. But I'm fairly optimistic, at least in the southern part of the state, we're going to see uh, precipitation continuing and wetting our fields. The northern part of the state is um, not necessarily in the storm tracks, but all you need is a little bump in the shift of that jet stream. And so then the northern part can, can get some of that water. Looking out in the fall, I think the general patterns I keep seeing is expect warmer than normal temperatures and a bit of uncertainty with respect to precipitation. I think the main thing that's going to be impacting the models we'll see in the next couple of months is how much of an influence the El Nino is going to have. So for the last three years, we've been under the La, La Nina phase of the El Nino, La Nina, or Southern Oscillation. But we know now that we've shifted into an El Nino. And so once they incorporate that into the climate prediction models, we should start seeing more of that pattern taking place. But in the transition time, there's just too much uncertainty. So I'm not going to commit myself and get in trouble by saying one way or the other. 
No, not at all. But certainly we uh, do appreciate the the long term and historical outlook. I, I get a great deal of uh, insight from those just because of trying to draw the correlations. So, Carl, Ben, anything else that we haven't covered with Dr. Hall that we need to hit before we uh, give her back her afternoon? And Brian, of, of course, you know, we could we could speak with Dr. Hall for hours on end about, you know, I guess uh, the impact that that the climate has on growing crops. Uh, but one question that I think is relevant or germane to the conversation, Beth, is uh, the impact of the Canadian wildfires and how that may be influencing weather patterns at a regional level. I got that question from a grower this morning and I thought that was germane to the conversation um, uh, when we have wildfire smoke from our Canadian neighbors, does that impact the amount of precipitation that gets taken out of the forecast was how his question was phrased. I know that might be putting too fine of a point on things, but just uh, from a regional perspective, impact of wildfire smoke uh, that it has on uh, on Indiana farmers. Sure, so anytime you have wildfire smoke and you're thinking about agriculture, the I think the two most popular things is how much is it gonna be blocking the sunlight? Mm-hmm. coming in. And so you have the photosynthetic impact of that. And um, I just keep trying to listen to Sean Castile and, and Dan Quinn out of Purdue to hear what they're saying, because um, initial things I've heard is they don't think it will have too much of an impact, but I certainly don't want to contradict them in case they have other information. The other thing that smoke can do with regards to sunlight is perhaps lower the temperatures. So if it's blocking sunlight, we might uh, think that that could lower our temperatures, which could then impact not only evapotranspiration, but if a crop such as corn stops performing, say, once temperatures get above a certain level, if the smoke can keep the temperatures below that, again, it could be offsetting maybe the impact of lack of sunlight from a photosynthetic side. Moving over to the precipitation side, depending upon the size of these smoke particles, And a lot of times they're so small, we're not seeing them as like floating dust, that we just Mm -hmm. see it as haze. They can become what's called cloud condensation nuclei, which are very small particles that any sort of vapor that is in the atmosphere, so that's going to be water in our gaseous form, will immediately come in contact with the cloud condensation nuclei and condense onto it. So it doesn't have to necessarily be a particular temperature. We can get cloud droplets, and cloud droplets are actually going to be even too small for our eyes to see, Um, but they could collide with each other and grow to become a rain droplet. But I think what we're more likely going to see, and this has been a problem even in the West, uh, the Western U.S., where they have a lot of wildfires, they're like, oh, but if we get a lot of droplets, maybe this will be a good thing and will get us out of the drought. Some studies have shown that it actually prevents precipitation because you have so many cloud condensation nuclei that you have so many tiny cloud particles that can stay suspended. You're almost preventing precipitation from occurring. Whereas if you didn't have that high quantity of smoke particles in the air, then you might have been able to have one or two grow big enough to be a rain droplet. So my assumption is um, the smoky atmosphere might inhibit some sort of rain. But when we see rain in the Midwest, it's usually coming as frontal or these major mesoscale convective complexes. I certainly don't think it's going to stop those. Those are so massive in size that the smoke from the wildfire shouldn't be stopping those. I mean, it might reduce it by a couple hundredths of an inch, but 
you know, when you're getting an inch at a time out of those systems, that's negligible. Excellent. Well, that was a, uh, that was exactly what I was going to ask Carl. So I'm glad you brought it up. Um, in lieu of a question, I'll say thanks to Beth. This has been enlightening. I use, I do use a lot of your products, uh, in my day to day and try to, how I try to organize my, my thoughts for conversations with growers about what, what is going on, um, so far in the season and likely to happen and how we're going to manage within that. So I'm very appreciative of that. Um, but this has been very enlightening and thank you for coming on. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And if anybody ever has any questions or wishes that we had a tool uh, available either through the State Climate Office or the Midwestern Regional Climate Center, um, our, like I said, the website is mrcc.purdue.edu. You can email us at mrcc.purdue.edu. Uh, and because I work with both programs, I'll get the email and we'll figure out which site would be better to post that tool on. That that is outstanding. She beat us to us, guys. We usually <laughs> ask our guests, you know, how we can follow along, and Dr. Hall's laid that out for us. And we will be sure to put links uh, to all of the resources that we've spoken about today in the show notes uh, for the podcast this time as well. So, uh, Dr. Hall, we certainly appreciate you being with us. Uh, certainly, I think if folks want to uh, follow along with you, they can reach you at one of those locations you've just mentioned for us. So. Uh, with that, I guess, Ben, Carl, if somebody wanted to uh, get a hold of you guys, wanted to talk about all the things uh, around the impact of climate and weather on corn and soybeans, uh, Ben, how can somebody follow along with you? Yep, you can find me on Twitter at the Ben Jacob or on Facebook at Ben Jacob Agronomy. Carl? And, uh, well, for the time being, you can follow along on Twitter at Sejourn or on Facebook at Sejourn Agronomy. But I heard uh, Beth use the word, it depends, uh, and also uh, variability. So she could be coming for uh, one of our jobs here before too long. But uh, in all sincerity, Dr. Hall, thank you for your time uh, visiting with us in Indiana Growers. Uh, Brian, yourself, how, how many people follow along? Uh, certainly, you can uh, find me at uh, Instagram at B underscore K underscore Schrader. Uh, and so, uh, Dr. Hall, again, thank you very much. It's uh, been an excellent uh, conversation. I think it adds a great deal of value uh, to all of the unknowns that many folks have because they just simply don't necessarily know all the ins and outs of uh, climatology and uh, our historical weather events. And so we appreciate your time today. And uh, thank you very much for being on the podcast with us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. So with that, uh, we'll call it an episode. We hope that uh, this finds you well and uh, safe. And if uh, you have any questions, please be sure to reach out to Dr. Hall or uh, your local Pioneer Agronomist and Sales Rep. With that, we'll call it an episode. Thank you for joining us for the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy Team. Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.